All right, Psalm 139. The title is Theology Proper, and that's just a fancy way of saying the doctrine of God. We're going to talk about the doctrine of God, the attributes of God. What is God like? Right now, uh, every other Wednesday, I disciple, there's one brother I disciple, and then the other Wednesday, I meet with a bunch of kids. And these kids range now from four, I think, to ten. And uh, we did the I Am sayings of John's Gospel last semester, and now we're going through the attributes of God. What is God like? Well, if you want to know what God's like, where do you go? You go to the Bible, because in the Bible, God shows us who He is and what He's like. Here's the big idea, and then I'll read our passage. Regularly, I don't know why I use that word so often, because I have a really hard time saying it. I just like it, but regularly respond to God's revelation by praising, praying, and pledging your life to the one true God. So we as Christians should regularly respond to God's revelation where? In His Word, by doing what? Praising, praying, and pledging our lives to the one true God. Psalm 139, hopefully this is familiar If not, listen. Listen to this wonderful psalm. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there... Your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and... I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let me start with a lesson in theology. I know this is not seminary, 
Um, but let me just start with a lesson in theology. There's no greater question than this, and hopefully you'll agree with me, what do you believe about God? But this question affects everything else. It affects your view of yourself, your, your view of the world, your view of eternity, right? Everything hangs on this question, what do you believe about God? Let me give you one example, and it'll, it'll make the point, trust me. The Bible teaches that we humans are made in the image of God. Therefore, we have great intrinsic value. We have inherent dignity. We have purpose, right? Because we're made in God's image. We are valued by God. We are His. He owns us by virtue of the fact that He made us. And the Bible tells us because we were made in His image, we were made for a purpose, to know God and to make Him known. Now, if you don't believe in God, if your worldview doesn't include God, but rather you believe that humans are the result of some great cosmic accident, then we possess no intrinsic value and we have no great purpose. Is true? So this question matters. What do you believe about God? As I mentioned earlier, Psalm 139 is concerned with the attributes or character of God, who he is and what he's like, his character. The psalmist David is found praising God time and time again for who God is and what he's like. Now, I mentioned the structure earlier. What we're going to see is David is going to highlight a particular attribute of God. He'll spend five to six verses unpacking that attribute. God is all-knowing. God is all-present. And then he pauses. He pauses to praise God for his revelation. It's like he's just like, he's writing this, he's inspired by the Spirit, he's talking about an attribute of God, and then it's like he can't even help himself, he just praises him, so he pauses to praise, and at the end, we have him pause to pray, and his prayer is really interesting, and that's the second thing we notice in our structure. If I had like Starburst, I would throw them out for the correct answer, but I've mentioned this term on Sunday mornings, we have an inclusio in Psalm 139. What is an inclusio? My mom did this, so that's right, it's a, it's a bookend, right? So an inclusio is a literary device where an author will begin a section or a chapter or a book with one theme or word and end with that same theme or word. And so he begins with knowledge of God, and then he ends by inviting God to know him. Oh, isn't that cool? I think it's really cool. All right, um, all right so here's the question. Here it is. What does Psalm 139 teach us about God? Number one, if you're taking notes, he is omniscient. That's verses one to six. What that means, it's a fancy word, God is all knowing. He knows everything. There is no limit to his knowledge. I've known some really smart people, okay? But it doesn't matter how intelligent you are, you are limited in what you know. God is not limited in his knowledge. He knows everything. He knows everything that's happened, is happening, will happen. He knows what we're thinking. He knows everything exhaustively, perfectly. Verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Now, what does this mean? So, the, the word for searched in the Hebrew, I'm not going to give you all the Hebrew words unless you want them. Um, it's hakar. Hakar. It means to investigate. Okay, so you've searched me, you have 
investigated me. God has investigated us. He knows us. Now, in graduate school, I wrote numerous research papers, right? And this involved investigating a subject exhaustively, right? Some of these papers were upwards of 80 pages long, and I would read not just commentaries, but I would read dissertations. I would read uh, academic articles because I wanted to know my subject matter inside and out, and, and God knows us that way. Amen? He knows everything about us. And then the second verb, so the first verb, uh, O Lord, you have searched me, okay? Hakar, you, you have investigated me. You know me exhaustively. And then he says, no, yadah. Now, what does that mean? You, you know, you've searched me and you've known me. This verb means to care about, to understand. It even denotes intimacy. He knows us intimately. God knows us. He understands us. He cares about us. He loves us. There's nothing more humbling than this. This is disarming. It really is to know that God knows us better than we know ourselves. Isn't that a bit disarming? Maybe that scares you a little bit. Maybe it should, right? God knows everything about you. He knows what you're thinking right now. He's investigated us. He knows us exhaustively. He understands us. He cares about us. And you might say, well, but God is so other than. He's he's so out there. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. He entered time and space in the incarnation, right? So the fact that he knows us is seen most clearly in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. None of us can ever say, God, you just don't understand. Well, he does. I hurt. I'm suffering. Well, so did Jesus, right? I hunger. Well, so did Jesus. He, he knows us because he stepped into our place. Amen? Hebrews 2, 17 to 18 Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Oh! And then Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. Why? Why? but one in every respect who has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I mean, he was tempted. The difference is we sin, he did not. But it's, it's more than that. This knowledge is more than just empathy. The Lord knows us intimately. He knows everything about us all the time. So in the first section, verses 1 to 6 of Psalm 139, again, we're talking about God being all-knowing, David uses several words, and you can underline these in your Bible, that pertain to knowledge. He's really trying to make the point. God knows you. He knows you, everything about you. He uses different words. He uses the word to search, to know, to understand, to be acquainted with, to discern. There is one who knows us better than ourselves. He knows our thoughts. He knows where we are all the time. He knows. Derek Kidner writes, This statement, he's kind of summarizing these six verses, this statement of omniscience, right? that means God's all-knowing, is confessed in adoration. So David, made aware of this knowledge by the Spirit, results in what? He pauses to do what? That's the rhythm. That's the movement of this psalm. He'll highlight an attribute of God, and then he'll pause in. Praise. Praise God for that attribute. David is in awe of God's omniscience. So how does David respond to this revelation of God's character, his omniscience? 
we have a pause for praise in verse 6. What does he say? Such, I mean, you can, you can hear it. Such knowledge. It's just too wonderful for me. It's too great, God. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, before moving on to the next attribute, there's a pause for praise. What does he mean in verse 6? Such knowledge is too wonderful. The word there means marvelous. It denotes wonder and awe directed to who? To God. Now, I mentioned this earlier. This practice, I promise you, will revolutionize your devotional time, your Bible reading. Don't just read God's Word. But when you read, when you study God's Word, pause and praise. Meditate on the wonderful truths of God's Word and then thank Him for His character revealed. Praise Him for what He's shown you. Isn't that a great practice? It's simple. So, you know, if you're reading to the Gospels and you're in Mark 2 and you see that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, stop and say, Jesus, thank you that you have the authority to forgive sin. That's good news for me, a sinner, right? Amen. <laughs> I just think that's really helpful. And we're following the biblical pattern. Read, pause, praise, read, pause, praise. Now, this intimate knowledge, so God knows us intimately, this intimate knowledge is reciprocated only by those who trust in the Lord and follow Him. God knows everything about everyone, but only those who align themselves with the Lord by trusting in Jesus can have an intimate knowledge and relationship with the Lord, right? I mean, the world doesn't know Him relationally. Only those who trust in Him do. Amen? God knows us. He knows us intimately. But if you want to know God, you better have His Son, Jesus, as your Lord and Savior. Amen? I mean, come on. Is there any greater truth than the fact that we can know God? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that hum- We can know Him. Well, I don't want to get into Sunday, but I'm excited about Sunday. Number two, he's omnipresent, which means what? He's all present. He's present everywhere. Okay, so the first attribute, he knows everything. He's omniscient. Verses 7 to 12, he's omnipresent. God is all present. This is such encouraging news. I mean, think about missionaries who leave their families and their friends and they go to the hard-to-reach places and they know that the Lord is with me. Think about you when you go to work and people are talking about you because you live differently. Who is with you? The Lord is. He's with His people, right? The Lord is always with us. He promises to be. And this is seen throughout the Scriptures. This is not just Psalm 139. If you've been in Exodus, right? I mean, that's what the tabernacle screams to Israel. I'm with you and I want to be with you, right? And I'm going to make provisions so that you can be with me. And then, of course, we come to the New Testament. And the ultimate provision so that we can be with God is Jesus. Amen? Exodus thirty-three fourteen, And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Psalm sixteen eleven. I don't think I put these in your handout, did I? Oh, I did. Okay. Psalm sixteen eleven. 
you make known to me the path of life in your presence. Oh, there is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. Psalm 46.1, God is our refuge and strength, a very what? Present help in trouble. Matthew 28.20, I mean the Great Commission. Go make disciples, right? Baptize, teach, but here's the good news. I mean, that's pretty daunting to go to the nations that we know are inevitably opposed to us, but guess what? Jesus says, I'll be with you what? Not sometimes, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. I mean, that, honestly, that, that's the only hope we have in accomplishing the mission he's given us. We go knowing he's with us, empowering us, comforting us, strengthening us. Amen? Verse 10 is hugely important. It's not just that God is with us or that he's, you know, watching us from a distance. He's inactive and uninvolved in this dispassionate observer. That's not the way God is described. God is not on the sidelines, but he is intimately involved. He is with us, right? He's with us. Verses 9 and 10, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, verse 10, this is really important, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me, all right? So we learn two things here. The Lord is with us at all times to lead us and to hold us namely those who trust in the Lord, right? Now, now, what does this mean? To lead, this is nacha, to lead, to lead. It denotes the Lord's protective guidance, his provision. The image is of a shepherd with his sheep, okay? He leads us in that way, right? The shepherd knows the sheep. He's with the sheep. He takes care of the sheep. In the same way, God is with his sheep, with his people. So that's to lead. We, we see that verb in Exodus 13.21. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. So we learn in verse 10, He's with us always to lead us, much like a shepherd does his sheep, and to hold us. Now what does that mean? This is a tough one. Ahaz. Ahaz. It means to hold fast. It's that, I got you. I got you, right? It's like when your child is scared and like Sammy, if she gets frightened, she'll come for daddy or mommy. A lot of times it's mommy, but if I'm home, she comes to daddy and I just hold her. We were wrestling the boys last night. It was me and Sam versus Clark and Luke. It was on. WrestleMania 2023. Did you guys see it on ESPN? No, because it wasn't there, but it happened in our house. And if the boys were coming out, they're being loud yelling, Daddy, Daddy, like she gets scared. And I just grab her and she just starts smiling. Why? Because I have her. And I'm bigger than my boys, right? <laughs> Hopefully. It's probably not always going to be the case, though. <laughs> it's so important that we know and believe these things about God, that he's with us to lead us and to hold us. Um, this language describes a friend. What's a good friend? There's someone who's there with you, right? They're there to hold you. I have a good friend who's a couple thousand miles away, I guess 1,800 miles away, Michael Voss. Uh, he's been here to visit. He's a pastor in Montana. But he's that kind of friend. He's, he's always checking in. He's, he's always there, right? That's how we describe our good friends, our confidants, but there's no friend better than the Lord. What a friend we have in Jesus, amen? 
Now, for the believer, this is good news. The unbeliever, however, cannot escape the presence of the Lord. Can the unbeliever get away from God? No. He's everywhere. However, the unbeliever will never know the intimate, life-giving presence of God until he or she repents and trusts in Jesus Christ. The unbeliever, right? the, the person that doesn't have Christ, will never know the leading and comforting presence of the Lord until they acknowledge that He's King and He's Savior. The third attribute, He's the Creator. And last week when we started this attribute study with the kiddos, the 4 through 10-year-olds, that's what we started with, because that's Genesis. I mean, what do we learn about God in Genesis 1? In the beginning, God, He created, right? He's the Creator. That's verses 13 to 15. Verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. What might we conclude from this point? If God made us, He owns us. It's true. If He made us, we belong to Him. We are His. And this helps us to see the, the true devastation of mankind's sin and rebellion. God's creation, that which His hands have made, have mounted up in rebellion against Him. Isn't that tragic? That's all of us though, right? Were it not for God's grace. Turned from rebels to worshipers. Amen? Now, there are two significant takeaways here from these verses 13 to 15 that I think are very relevant for our present day culture. The first is this. These verses, what I just read again, we're establishing, God is establishing for us that I'm the, I'm the creator, right? I've made you. First, these verses help us to see the grievous nature of abortion. This is in your notes, in light of God's word. Right? Verses 13 and 15 describe God's intimate and intentional involvement in creating us. I mean, listen to verse 15. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. The language of intimately woven in the depths of the earth is a metaphor for the hiddenness of the womb. Derek Kidner writes, God is operative in the womb, the author of every detail of my being. Like an artist, God takes great care in designing our bodies, right? And this begins at conception. This truth sheds light on the dignity of the human body. Something that must be recognized before what? Before birth. Furthermore, this is so interesting. In verse 16, we have the Hebrew word for embryo. The text says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Now, I bet you haven't heard this. When I say, hey, Kyle, I see you, well, I, I visibly see you. I see that you have a hornet's sweatshirt on. But the Hebrew word means so much more. You know what it means when God says, I, I saw your unformed substance. I, I saw the embryo. This verb is really cool. It means not only to enjoy looking at, but to see with concern. Oh! To see caringly. To see with concern. God is concerned with unborn babies beginning with conception, through the earliest stages of development, and right on into birth. Amen? The unborn baby has immense value in the eyes of the Lord. God is saying, I saw you. I cared about you. 
as I was fashioning you and shaping you in the womb. If God values the unborn, shouldn't we? Amen? I mean, that's really what being a Christian is all about. We, we hate what God hates, and we love what He loves. We value what He values. We're aligning our lives with Him, right? No longer are we going our way. We're saying, God, I'm going to go your way. I'm going to submit to you, and what you love, I'm going to love, and what you hate, I'm going to hate. And we'll get to that part, because that probably, I could tell when we read that, you're like, wait, hate? It's a strong word. It is a strong word. Second, these verses help us to see that gender matters, that, that it's inherent to our biological makeup, and that it's part of God's creative intention. Von Roberts writes, We should resist all the influences that lead so many to have a low body image. And rather than wishing we'd been made differently, we should thank God for the body He's given us. The basic message of creation is this, he writes, each person's biologically determined sex is a good gift of God's creation. We should accept it and live within it. So to abort a baby is to destroy God's beautiful handiwork and to deny one's gender is to reject God's creative intention. And our passage prevents both of these things. And then we have a pause for praise. Verse 14. I praise you. (laughs) I mean, how else do you respond or should you respond to the fact that God is everywhere and he's the creator of everything? Well, how does David respond? I praise you. That's appropriate, right? I mean, we should be in awe of God's attributes revealed in his word. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. David stops to praise God. Why? On what basis? He says, for. That's the Hebrew key. He's giving the reason or the grounds. I praise you, here's why. For, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. David is in awe of God's creative process. Like his response to God's omniscience, David is wowed by the intricacies surrounding the process of a developing baby. David is thankful that the Lord has made him. He praises God for the gift of life and acknowledges God as the life giver. Now, what is meant by the phrase fearfully and wonderfully made? Probably see that in a lot of homes, right? Framed that verse. What does it mean that we're fearfully and wonderfully made? The word used for fear here denotes reverence and awe. God's Creation, his handiwork, should cause us to honor and revere God, to marvel at his works. The miracle of life should move us to wonder and awe. Um, If you're a dad, raise your hand. Raise your hand if you were there at the, the birth of your children. You saw that life coming out. Oh my goodness, man. I mean, I, it messed me up. I was bawling. I was in awe of God's goodness and just the wonder that he made this thing, this beautiful baby, this life, my boys, and now my little girl, and he's entrusting them into our care to raise up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. But I mean, just the beauty of life that God created this. Oh man, I was messed up. I think the the doctor's like, what is wrong with this guy? It was the ugly crying, right? It was just, but I was just so happy and thankful and in awe of God's grandeur, and uh, they thought, this guy, get him out of here. Um, 
Number four, he's sovereign. So, so what have we learned about God's character? He's all-knowing, he's all-present, he's the creator, and he's what? So this, this really knocks out the legs of the deist argument that, yeah, God is the creator, but he's not involved, right? God got things going, he kind of wound up the clock, and then he went on permanent holiday. No, God is involved in his creation. He oversees everything. He is sovereign. He's in control. Here we see God's purpose and providence related to our lives. Here we see his sovereignty. Verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. That's pretty incredible. Can I read that one more time? Nobody said no, so I'm going to, and even if you did, I'd say, well, I'm going to go and read it. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So, what are we to make of verse 16? Not only has God made us, but he's made us for a purpose, right? God is sovereign over our lives. He's in control. This makes sense. It should. The one who has the power to make us has the power to guide our lives in everything toward his desired end and that for his glory. What we see in verse 16 is that the Lord has a purpose for each individual, God has a plan, a foreordained plan for our lives. And He will guide our lives toward that end for His glory. The doctrine of God's sovereignty, and I think it was maybe, uh, was it Charles Spurgeon that said, it's the pillow that I lay my head on at night. I mean, it gives me comfort knowing, and again, it really depends on what you know about God. If your view of God is He's mean-spirited, He's, he's vindictive, He's capricious, He's this way one day and, and this way the next, then I would be terrified of God's sovereignty, but that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God that was revealed in Jesus Christ. The God of the Bible is good. He is wise. He is faithful. He is just, meaning He always does the right thing. And the fact that that God's in control gives me what? Gives us what? Rest and peace. It should. As one scholar writes, the Lord is sovereign over the span and content of every human life. The Lord is sovereign over each person even before that person actually appears. All right, what's it time for? It's time to praise. So what do we have next? A pause for praise. Verse 17. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Again, the psalmist stops to praise God in response to God's wonderful revelation. He is sovereign. He is in control. The object of David's praise, what does verse 17 say? What is he praising God for? How precious to me are your what? Your, your thoughts, right? So the object of David's praise is the Lord's thoughts. Now, the word for thoughts here in Hebrew, uh, it's re'ah. Everybody say re? Re'ah. Re'ah. It refers to the Lord's intentions, his purposes. That's what the word means. He's praising God for his purposes, right? And how can he do that? How can he do that? Because the God that is sovereign is good. Therefore, his purposes are? They're good. The God who is sovereign is wise. Therefore, his purposes are? 
They're wise, right? So it makes sense that if we have God's revelation, we know what he's like, and we learn that he's also sovereign, yeah, we're going to praise him. I'm going to praise him. Even when life hurts, even when you lose a baby, hey, guess what? God is still good. God is still wise. I might not understand what's happening, but I know that he's in control and everything he does, he does for his glory and our good. Amen? I can praise him. We can praise him. God's thoughts toward David, his purposes, God's purposes for David are precious to David. He treasures the truth that God is intimately involved, sovereign over his life. He's made us. He has plans for us. Again, we cannot fully comprehend God. We've been given a glimpse into his thoughts and purposes, but their vastness should leave us in awe and wonder at the bigness of God. Amen? I mean, when you read Psalm 139, you should be like, whoa, wow. What is the proper response to the revelation of God's character? This is the next point. The psalmist David aligns himself with the Lord. This is good. I mean, follow the logic of this passage. What have we learned about God? He's all-knowing. He knows everything. He's all-present. He's everywhere. He's the creator. He made everything. And he's sovereign. He's in control. So what should we do? We should align ourselves with him. Because he's making a very exclusive claim to know everything, to be everywhere, to be the creator of all, and to be in control over all. He is God. Therefore, we should align ourselves with him. And that's what David does. And these are difficult verses. I, I get it, right? What are we to do with sayings like, slay the wicked, and do I not hate those who hate you? These verses appear at first glance, at first glance, to be at odds with the teachings of Jesus, but I assure you they're not. To give one's allegiance to God is to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. It's to be for what God is for and to be against what God is against. God is against sin, death, and Satan. Therefore, so should we. Amen? We should be opposed to the forces and institutions that are opposed to God. Uh, again, Derek Kidner. I love K-Dog. Um, I wouldn't call him that, but Derek Kidner. Maybe DK. Probably wouldn't say that either. I'd call him Dr. Kidner. Um, he says, for all its vehemence, the hatred in this passage is not spite, but zeal for God. The, the psalmist, David, in response to God's revelation, is committed to abstaining from evil. And this is seen in places like Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, right? Blessed is the man who walks not in the count of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of God. Right? He meditates on it day and night. Now, there's also a warning in these verses. What's the warning? What's the warning? In light of what we've learned already, we see the utter foolishness of rebelling against this God. Do you really want to go against this God? Do you want to do that? Who's all-knowing, all-present, all-powerful? Is it wise to go against Him? I would think that's the most foolish thing in the world. What is the proper response to align yourself with him? So this is a warning to oppose the one who is all-knowing and all-present and all-powerful 
is to enter into the absurd. It's to fall under the judgment of God. So how have you responded to God? Namely, the beautiful revelation of God in his word, specifically Psalm 139. I mean, isn't this a great psalm? How does the psalm end? And what was the inclusio? Begins with knowledge of God and then the prayer at the end. David says, oh God, you know me, right? Oh man, a pause for prayer. Verses 23 and 24. I've been praying this verse daily probably the last 15 months. I've just made it a part of my regular daily prayer routine is praying these verses. I would encourage you to memorize these verses and start praying these. Search me, O God, and know me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David does not wish to be counted with those who are reckoned as God's enemies. God's wonderful revelation of himself in his word has moved David to align himself with the king. And again, this prayer, these last two verses, this final prayer in Psalm 139 must be read in context. Already we've seen that the Lord knows us how well? How well does he know us? He knows us exhaustively. He knows us definitively. He's investigated our lives. David knows this, and therefore he prays, search my heart. God, you know me. You know my secret sins. Search my heart. Make me aware of any rebellious thought. Lead me in your way. David is asking the Lord to continue to align his heart and life to him. This is the prayer of one who has given their allegiance to the Lord. It's the prayer of one who is secure in the Lord. David is transparent before his king. He's candid. He's confident, not in himself, but in the goodness and grace of God. The one who is for him and is committed to being with him. Remember, to lead him into what? To hold him. I would argue, though, that this type of prayer, right, search me, know me, must be coupled with a careful examination of God's Word. Right? When we pray, God, search me and know me, what are we essentially saying? Reveal to me anything in my life that is not in line with Your Word so that I can do what? So that I can turn from it and align my heart and life more and more with You. We must continually hold up God's Word in our lives and ask the question, does my life conform to God's truth, His Bible? Let me end with a couple of applications and then how we can pray this psalm together. For the believer, I want to speak first to the believer and then to the unbeliever. Right? There may be an unbeliever or two or three here tonight, I don't know. For the believer though, pray these verses daily. Especially verses 23 and 24. Search me and know me. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Learn those verses and start praying them daily. And mean it. Mean it. Ask the Lord to search you and make you aware of anything in your life that is opposed to Him. Man, I think if you're unwilling to do that, you're in a dangerous place. I mean, you know that God knows you. You know that he knows what you're doing and how you're thinking and, and what you're maybe treasuring more than you should. 
And if you really want to follow him, you're going to say, Lord, search me. Make me aware of anything that is not in line with you. That's the prayer of sanctification. Amen? That's the prayer of someone who wants to become more and more like Christ, who wants to please the Lord more and more. Search me and know me. Reveal to me anything that is not in line with you so that I can turn from it and follow you. Now, for the unbeliever, for the unbeliever, pray these verses for the first time and look to the one who came embodying the full revelation of God. Who's that? Jesus Christ, the one who is all-knowing, the one who is always with his people by the Spirit, the one through whom all things were made, right? <laughs> the one who will return to judge the wicked, the one who is the way, the only way for sinners like us to be reconciled to God because he lived a perfect life, died a death in place of sinners like us, taking the wrath of God in our place. And then he rose again, breaking the curse and making a way back to heaven for his people. So acknowledge your sin, call out to the Savior, and repent and believe in Jesus if you've not done that. And here's how we might pray Psalm 139. Verses 1 to 6. And you can just read along, but just pray this. Make this your own prayer. The reason I'm doing this is I want you to see that the Psalms are meant to teach God's people how to pray, right? I mean, and, and that's all I'm doing. This is my prayerful response to verses 1 to 6. Father, you're all-knowing. You know me inside and out. Your knowledge humbles my heart and leaves me in awe of you. May my thoughts and words be pure. May this knowledge of you cause me to strive for greater degrees of holiness. And in verses 7 and 12, Oh God, you are present everywhere. You are with me wherever I go. Such knowledge comforts me greatly and emboldens me to share the gospel with others. May this knowledge of you cause me to strive for greater degrees of holiness. Verses 13 to 18, Oh God, you are the creator of everything. You made me. You own me. I am yours. I give you my life. You are sovereign and your will is supreme. May your will be done in my life. Help me to value life more and more and to do all that I can to help protect the unborn. Save mothers who are considering abortion so that they may share your view of the unborn. Use your church to serve these women and to come alongside them to help care for them and their children. Give your church a greater desire for adoption. And may this knowledge of you cause me to strive for greater degrees of holiness. Oh God, judge the wicked. Help me to hate sin with a holy hatred and to always side with your word. Move me to oppose what you oppose and to love what you love. Bring my heart in line with your own. And then again, I mean, how can you better say, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And all God's people said, amen. amen.